Welcome to Weird Studies, an arts and philosophy podcast with hosts Phil Ford and J.F. Martell. For more episodes or to support the podcast, go to weirdstudies.com. Welcome to Weird Studies. This is Phil. I usually write out these introductions. I like having an opportunity to look back on the conversation that JF and I just had and ponder what it all means and maybe try to come up with some fresh insight that might throw it all in a new perspective, but I do not feel up for that this week. So I am giving it to you straight off the dome, as the kids say. Improvising which is kind of what I always do with JF, uh, as we, in fact, discuss a little bit at the beginning of this conversation. But it's rather different improvising with somebody, you know, sort of like playing tennis or something. Uh, That's one thing. But improvising by yourself, staring into a microphone, that's quite another. So, with these intros, I usually uh, don't leave anything to chance and write it all down. But no, this time it feels appropriate to to be messy, to chance something, to venture something. After all, it's the beginning of our fifth year. And JF and I mark the occasion not with a fanfare of drums and trumpets, but rather with a hangover and a sleep-bleared countenance. J.F. and I were not, what you might say, at our best. At least at the beginning of this conversation, but at a certain point we found our theme, which has something to do with the expression, time is a flat circle. And the conversation takes wing and eventually comes back full circle. And we end up kind of repositioning all the various random maunderings of the first half hour or so into a new configuration where perhaps they make some kind of sense. At least I like to think so. Score another one for improvisation. Anyway, hope you enjoy what follows. By the way, before I go, I should probably mention the Patreon. You know what Patreon is. And by now, if you've listened to the show at all, you know what our Patreon is, that we share pieces of writing and bonus audio with our fans. And for the low, low price of $6, if you want all the writing and the audio, or $3 for just the writing, or $1 if you just want to have a clear conscience. Anyway, something to think about. But for now, enjoy the show.
right, here we go. Season, was yeah. it season five? Season five of Weird Studies uh, starting? Let me think about this. Eight, nine, oh, one. Yeah, it's the beginning of season five. Holy fuck. It's exciting. Shit, how is it possible? <laughs> We've been doing this for four years already. It's crazy. And we haven't run Damn. out of things yet. We still have uh, plenty of Major Arcana to go anyways, <laughs> so if nothing else. Yeah, maybe at the end of the show, I'll be like, that's it. That's Those are all the things I know. <laughs> those are all my ideas. We hit that point at about episode eight for me, <laughs> but I've been, <laughs> I've been drawing on other resources, but yeah. I do sometimes feel that it's not about constantly coming up with new ideas, but theme and variations. There was somebody in the Reddit who complained about one particular idea that came up that the tarot and the I Ching are kind of a blend of digital and analog. Oh, yeah. And yeah. anyway, somebody complained. He was like, yeah, it's almost an idea, but as so often happens, it mm -hmm. dissolves into this haze where everything equals everything. And well, know, yeah, they actually, need to be, they need to be more rigorous about developing ideas. And I was thinking about that because actually he's not entirely wrong. I think that's an occupational hazard when you're in mystic territory that at a certain point, everything does in fact equal everything. But the challenge I think is that in a improvisatory medium, these conversations are improvisations where we don't have the composer's prerogative to go back and change things and fix things and move things around. Well, we could do that, I suppose, but we don't script, you know? And so as a result, we will often hit a point where when I'm listening to the playback, when we're editing, I'm like, I'm not a hundred percent sure what we're talking about there. It made sense at the time. I can sometimes hear myself agreeing with things where I'm like, yes. And then, and then I listen to the playback. And I'm like, I don't know what I was agreeing to yeah. exactly. But I seem to at the time, I was very confident at the time. But the point is that because this is a sort of a serial medium, ideas like that, we can always like revisit them in a later conversation and they keep coming up unbidden uh, yes. organically from whatever it is we're talking about. And so the ideas do develop, but they don't develop compositionally within a single frame. Often the first time you hear an idea will be in a very everything equals everything way. And then subsequent turns of the wheel, see what I did there, yeah. will allow us to get greater and greater precision. At least that's what I like to think. So in other words... It's like you're watching a magic show and the trick isn't over until episode, what? The last episode of Weird Studies. And then it'll all make sense. So until then, just like keep your criticisms to yourselves. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if that was the takeaway. I like the idea that if this is, if the analogy is to a magician, like the first night, opening night, try to take a rabbit out of the hat. And it's just me walking over to a cage and taking a rabbit yeah. In full view of the audience, putting it in a hat and then taking it back out of the hat again. Okay, right. there's the trick. Ta-da! Yeah. And then the next night, maybe it's a little bit more refined. And so exactly. on until by closing time, I'm actually materializing the rabbits, not trick. I'm, I'm yeah. actually doing it. But that's I mean, the, I mean, that's my ideal. I have to say, like, first of all, it's also, there's a difference between an idea and a kind of resonance or a, an observation, a remark or a little ping of correspondence, which is what the analog digital thing was with the tarot in I Ching, but I think it's fairly clear what we were saying there. I don't remember who, which one of us was saying it, but probably me, if it was digital and analogs, I always go back to that. Productive distinction. And the, uh, you know, by way of answering this, this question there on Reddit is that the, the I Ching is a binary system, broken line, solid line, yeah. period. It's, it's a binary, binary math. It's a, it's yeah. a binary computer. 
And yet the texts attached, the texts appended to the hexagrams are profoundly analog. They are translations of translations of an ancient language. And they are mm -hmm. um, very, very specific to a particular sociopolitical organization. They talk about tribes and kings and ancient China. They belong to that world. So they're extremely analog. So you have this combination of this digital system with this very, very analog exegetic system that goes with it. Mm -hmm. And that together is the I Ching. Whereas the tarot is very analog on the surface. There's no there's uh, systemic, it's pictures, but there's also several systems coexisting without any attempt really at harmonizing themselves imminently within their own structure. Like the major arcana are totally different from the minor arcana. They use Roman numerals, whereas the minor ones use Arabic numerals. The court cards... I mean, they make sense to us because we're used to playing cards, but the court cards are just a complete qualitative departure from the numbered cards. Yeah. And then you have true. the major arcana in there and you have a fool. The fool has no number. And it's just, it's a completely analog system. And yet, if you dig a little bit or if you just look at the cards, you'll see a kind of digital language of the symbol with all the recurrent symbolisms and all that and the, the kind of light motifs that run through it. It's not an idea. It's just a... A kind of poetic, oh, look at that. Isn't that interesting kind of thing? But I think that the digitality mm. of the I Ching is actually, that's an idea. And that's something that has been and should be explored because it's quite amazing uh, that such a mathematically sophisticated binary digital system could emerge at that point in history. It's, yeah. it's I think, quite amazing and should caution us against any one-sided rejection of the digital as a kind of purely modern development. Right. If there's an antiquity to the digital as well. Well, I was thinking about the idea of the gunas, and uh, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly, but it's an idea in ancient Indian philosophy. And the gunas are somewhat like the three basic elements of alchemy, salt, mercury, sulfur. Right. For that matter, in terms of what a guna is, they're somewhat like the two primordial energies or qualities of the I Ching, the receptive and the creative, mm. except whereas the I Ching is binary, we have the receptive and the creative, and the system completely breaks down if we try to introduce a third element, chocolate chip, for example. Yeah. Nevertheless, the gunas are three, and there are three of them. One is equivalent to the receptive, one is equivalent to the creative, and then the third one is a point of equilibrium or balance, sort of the equivalent of the alchemist's salt. Mm. In any event, thinking about the gunas and the primordial energies at Crowley, for example, saw the three figures of the Wheel of Fortune card of the tarot's uh, allegorizing or symbolizing those kinds of energies. That's kind of... Okay, where was I going with this? You well, said this I don't know if I can jump the in The problem here. with being hungover and trying <laughs> to record an episode when you're hungover. I got accidentally shit-faced last night, ladies and gentlemen. It was an accident. And I was, uh, I suffered from insomnia and woke up about 15 minutes before we started recording this. Yeah. You, just, you got two sleepy motherfuckers yeah. trying to talk about the Wheel of Fortune. And it occurred to us before the show that this is in fact some Wheel of Fortune shit right here. Both of us dealing with our respective impairments. Anyway, what were you going to say? I was going to say that there is a third element in the I Ching as well. And this is the strange third element that makes sure 
that no serpent ever wins, right? To use the language uh, that's used in uh, Tomberg's chapter on the Wheel of Fortunes, that no binary system, no system of of opposition will ever be complete. There's always a third element coming to change things. And in the I Ching, it's present implicitly in the form of the moving lines, which is the Tao, the way, the change, mm. change itself, the book of changes, the element of change, of unpredictable change, the element by which any particular hexagram could transform into any other particular hexagram right. is a third element that is not represented as a, a, a third type of line, but is nevertheless essential for the I Ching to enter into movement and for every circle yes. that it draws to turn into, to use Tomberg's language, a spiral, an open circle, to opens the circle constantly. Ooh, that's a very, I like that. Yeah. I like that way of thinking. That's good. But yes, but you perform the magic there with your, your radiophonic genius. You serve the perfect segue <laughs> into the subject. <laughs> and My now hung I, over radiophonic genius. Yeah. Exactly. So uh, let's let's uh, let's just get this into the. Is, this wheel is of some fortune. drunken master shit. It's like my true kung fu skills only become manifest when I'm kind of fucked up. Yeah, and yeah. Um, drunken I'm, master, and just <laughs> like like old dirty bastard of the Wu Tang Clan. That's drunken master style. And if everything had gone as planned, there would have been a third element today too. Pat Sajak would have accepted our our invitation. <laughs> Is he but still alive? I don't know. I think so. Hold on first. Nope, he's he's around. He's, Wasn't uh, he a, like a, a huge yeah. Trump supporter? Oh, I don't know. I don't know. Uh, Never liked that guy. Oh, really? I, I like Trebek, you know? I, 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 you know, when I was a kid, I would watch um, both shows. I would watch Wheel of Fortune in anticipation for Jeopardy. Um, I'd sit with my mom and watch Wheel of Fortune and Jeopardy sometimes. Jeopardy's a quality show. It was. Yeah, Alex Trebek is from my hometown, Sudbury. Yes, I know. I know. And my home province. I feel like he's a homeboy too because <laughs> Sudbury is yeah. pretty close and uh, I'm in the, the minority Close of in spirit. Well, it's really close on a planetary scale and also culturally because I'm aware of Sudbury. <laughs> Which makes me, in a, in a certain way, makes, makes me a, what is it, a Sudburyite, <laughs> in a way, like Sudburyan. a Sudburyan. Sudburyan, that sounds like a tribe in like uh, Robert E. Howard or something. The Sudburyans. Actually, it does. <laughs> Got some RPG shit on the brain. Yes. Um, I've been playing a lot of Skyrim lately, which is a video game RPG and I am playing as a dark elf named Chumley the Uncomely. I just, <laughs> I just felt I had to put that in. Chumley the Uncomely. I like that. Okay, I'm already imagining this episode is going to be a nightmare to edit. No, no, we'll just keep all everything this, in. <laughs> That's all. And, and meanwhile, our, like that guy who wrote the thing in Reddit, he's just getting pissed off. He's just like, I'm, I want ideas. Formulated rigorously. <laughs> Here we are just talking about the name of my dark elf character. I'm sorry, Redditor, whoever you are. I'm, I, I, I tease because I love. Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, there's no better time to get to, the, get to the point here. So we've been doing a series, just, you know, in case you're not aware, um, Phil and I have been doing an ongoing occasional series of episodes exploring the symbolic depths of the major arcana of the tarot which are the the 22 standalone cards in the tarot that form a kind of deck within a deck right so it starts with the fool goes all the way to the 
the world. There are 22. They correspond mysteriously to the 22 paths of the tree of life in Kabbalah. And we've so far we've done what we've done, we've done the the priestess no we've done I think this is a fifth maybe we've done we've done we've done the empress the mm-hmm. fool mm-hmm. the tower the moon yeah and this I think that's it that's it oh we've got law got some ways to go and I would argue that we also oh, did the magician. not even one quarter of the way through the major arcana yeah triflers mere triflers we wanted to do five last year but we don't have that many episodes in a year. You know, and you, yeah. you consider the guest stuff and the, the books we're reading, and it's just really hard to, to get five episodes of this. Anyways, maybe well, we'll I'm get not a planning few... on going anywhere anytime soon. So, like, we exactly. can just keep churning these out. And actually, maybe when we get to the final one, we finish all 22, some terrible fate will befall us. Like, we're living on borrowed time as it is. Fate is staying its hand just to wait for us to finish the tarot. Right. the very last episode on the tarot. Terrible misfortune will strike us down. Right. So let's not yeah. rush into it. Yeah. So this time we had a discussion as to what we wanted to do next. And we were, we were thinking about doing strength or force. Um, and finally we wanted, oh no, we just said, we, we discussed temperance. We wanted to, you suggested we do one of the boring ones because we've been doing, for, we've been going for, the, <laughs> and it's true that we don't want to just, you know, build up all the, the lame ones for the end and then have it to like check, <laughs> check off the boxes and do all the, the boring ones. So we took, unfortunately we decided to go with another interesting one though. We decided to go yeah. with the wheel of fortune. I just want to put in briefly, however, that I do want to do the quote unquote boring cards and take them seriously and find a of way course. of really kind of, yeah, because I had a experience. I, there used to be this kind of occult book club that, uh, I was a part of just very informal for funsies, you know, nothing too serious. But one day we decided we were going to learn a little bit about the tarot and I had the most experience with the tarot. So I was, so I got out one of my decks of cards and I was like, let's just do a three card draw. And then we'll talk about what these cards mean. It's the best way to learn about what's up with the tarot is just to start playing with it, at least yeah. so far as I'm concerned. And so we drew the emperor, the devil, and then a pip card that I don't remember. What was interesting to me was that, you know, this is a bunch of like university people, uh, people who are not only educated, but educated in very much the modern style. University trained, university employed person in many ways ends up being a kind of avatar of intellectual modernity for good and ill. It's a mixed bag. But one result of this is that everybody gets very excited about the devil card. Everybody is psyched to see the devil. Right. Because the devil is transgression. The devil is desired. The devil is this kind of upending force that destroys pieties and restrictions. It's all kinds of cool, exciting shit that academics are going to find cool and exciting. Like, we love transgression. The emperor, on the other hand. (laughs) And the emperor, on the other hand, is all the stuff that we want to see overthrown or rebelled against, right? Right. The the emperor is the square, the ultimate, the cosmic square. Patriarchy. Um, Exactly. I mean, you know, for one thing, he's Arcanum four. Yeah. Sitting upon a cube. He is literally a square. Yeah, exactly. And... You know, so like, we don't like him. He represents like authority, state authority, or, you know, your boss, like, you know, reaming you out for something or whatever. 
nobody's excited to see the emperor. And so we're spending all this time talking about the devil and just completely ignoring the emperor. And at a certain point, I was like, you know, if we were like medieval peasants and we drew these two cards out of a, you know, an early deck, which is actually ridiculous to think about because the earliest decks were the playthings of nobles, not peasants, but whatever. Imagine, you know, we were medieval people or early modern people drawing these cards. We would probably have the exact opposite reaction. We would be delighted to see the emperor because the emperor you know, symbolizes strength, dominion, stability, the lack, the absence of chaos, Order. whereas the devil yeah. is like what you spend your life trying to, it's all the shit you spend your life trying to avoid. Yeah. And which isn't to say that our way is wrong and an older way is better or vice versa, but rather that uh, the tarot, like everything else, manifests in time. And we as mere human beings and not sages will respond to it very much in the way that people of our time will. But uh, all of this is to say that the very fact that we think of temperance and justice and strength as the boring cards, which let's face it, we do, at least I do. Um, oh. Those are the, you know, the, the Christian virtue cards. Like if you get that in a reading, oh, I should be strong, temperate, and just. Fucking what a stupid idea. <laughs> well, it just seems so obvious and bland and namby-pamby and goody-two-shoes. Well, it two seems shoes obvious and, and bland and right? seems like the one thing people are trying to avoid being at the same time. Like, that we right. are, it's in our nature to find lame and to laugh at and to, right. to assume at the we same are time, already, uh, you know, like it's just yeah, classic. Which is a very egotistical and yeah. I hate rather, and rather modern point of view, right? right. So all of this is a very long-winded way to say that when we're approaching these cards, I'm trying to, I accept that I am a creature of my age, but I'm also trying to think like, well, how would a creature not of my age approach these symbols, these cards? Right. I don't know. Do you have a thought related to that vis-a-vis -vis the Wheel of Fortune card? Oh, I'm trying to bring it there, but uh, just staying with what you're saying here. Um, so recently on a Patreon Extra, I brought up a, a Catholic podcast I sometimes listen to and Someone went What's and called? listened to it, Pints with Aquinas. And, you know, the host, Matt Fratt, is, is quite conservative by, you know, the standards of uh, a typical kind of liberal education. And then someone on Patreon tried to listen to it and thought, oh, this is really conservative. How can JF listen to this? And well, liked it, but also was turned off. Liked it, but it also was thing. turned off. But yeah, was found some of the conservative, and some of it is quite conservative, actually, um, quite conservative. Yeah, so it's ask, do I have any tips on how to listen to that sort of thing? And, and it's funny because I was listening to you and you were really characterizing a kind of sympathy for the devil, seeking out transgression as the modern way. But in fact, it's one part of the modern way. There's a whole other part of the mm -hmm. modern that's the conservative end of the political spectrum, which is no less modern. It's not like they are medieval peasants. They are right. modern people, right. but they react very differently to the same symbols that excite us. So uh, my, my answer was just that when that, I mean, it was you actually who, who gave me a good talking to very early on in our friendship. And you're like, dude, you need the emperor, you know? And you gave oh, me yeah, this big spiel on that. the emperor. And that was a real turning point for me. I really took that seriously. And I remember the connection. It was that conversation. Then I went and I read The Face of God by Roger Scruton. I started to seek out conservative voices, um, hmm. intelligent conservative voices, which, oh, my God, could that possibly exist? 
yes, it does actually. And some of them are smarter than you, <laughs> you know, like that's the thing about this binary system we're locked in with no third element coming in the serpent without a dove that we're kind of trapped in today. It's that mm. we're unable to imagine how the opposite perspective could possibly be as enlightened as our own. Or as, yeah. you know, as partially enlightened as our own, let's say. So I really started to make it. And, and at this point, I'm very comfortable listening to people who are actually quite conservative. And I might not agree with everything they say, but I realize that I've become acclimatized to a certain type of discourse that I think I used to be allergic to. And I think mm -hmm. that's a good thing. Oh, Some yeah. people would say, oh, you're, JF's becoming a conservative. You know, he's switching over to the other side. And I guess from their perspective, from a recalcitrantly progressive perspective, uh, that's true. I am moving to that side. But I'm convinced that it's, this is not a sign that I'm being somehow radicalized or brainwashed or anything. I'm actually just seeing the other side of the coin and really trying to maintain that spirit of charity as I expose myself to ideas that have been described to me by my entourage as poisonous, toxic um, uh, medieval benighted. I just don't buy that shit anymore. I just don't buy it. Mm. So well, that's my, I always think of Yaroslav Hasek as a, a Czech anarchist writer who wrote one of the funniest books ever written, the good soldier's fake, who, when his book was attacked by moralists, because it has a lot of rough language in it, he has a great line, a well-brought up person may read anything. Exactly. And yeah. we don't, think that way so much. No. We have the idea that the influence of a text, a text whose base ideology we don't agree with, well, we have to keep away from that. We can't even touch it. There's a kind of contagion, a moral contagion that comes of reading such a thing. Merely reading the thing, you're putting yourself at hazard of a kind of infection. Merely if you are reading Roger Scruton or, or some conservative writer, that is a sign of a stain in your soul. Right. That it shows that you have changed in some way. Right. And what I take Hashak to be saying is quite the opposite. There are some people who are easily polluted by ideas, who get taken over by ideas, who can be possessed by them. Enthusiasts, unjust people, people lacking perhaps some of those boring virtues of justice and temperance mm. and strength. Weak-minded individuals. Uh, you know, we have to accept the fact that there are people who are going to grasp an idea by the wrong end. But this whole show, soup to nuts, has been predicated on the idea that there is always a way of reading something where you can get yeah. value out of it. And not necessarily value that the author of the text ever thought anybody would find or that the author found themselves in the in the text this idea that we cannot establish a relationship with a text that a text has some fixed and immutable meaning that will kind of take us over whose very existence on our bookshelf is a sign of moral degeneracy my god what could be more superstitious than that style of thought I will say in reading the kind of things that I read routinely for the show and just like in my life, I am constantly stumbling up against things where I'm like, I don't know about that. Like fucking read book of the law, you know, like Alistair Crowley <laughs> book of the law. 
If you yeah. just read that blandly, like I see no problems here. I mean, Crowley had to. You're taking us with to that. something that any sensible person would react to that way. Um, that would react to what way? The Book of the Law, or you know, some of the things that it's challenging. It's, yeah, it's more than challenging. I'm, I'm it's obviously, like, I'm using, yeah, a, I'm using a, extreme, I'm using a, yeah, a deliberately extreme example. Exactly. The point being that I know that feeling of like encountering something where like, do I want to give any of this my charitable attention? Because it's like to understand an idea, you have to donate a little bit of your mm -hmm. attention. You have to proceed from the charitable assumption that you might have something to learn from this and that you need to donate a little bit of your consciousness to it. So that's how it gets in. And there is this sort of fear, a little bit of a fear reaction when you encounter something that's a little bit antithetical. A little bit inimical. It's just something that's spiky and spiny. It doesn't want to be embraced. At least that's how you see it. Of course, it's all perspective. But like in that moment, what do you do? That's actually an interesting kind of intellectual yoga. That yeah. question: What do you do in that moment? Yeah, no, that's a great. That's a, and, and you know what? It's your Crowley example is perfect actually because one of the areas where when I talk to other Christians, one of the areas that I can see that reaction on people's faces is when I talk about decadence and, um, you know, Lautriamont or Huisman or you know, Oscar Wilde or Oscar Wilde's a little less controversial, but some of the Aubrey Beardsley and that sort of thing that I see as being really committed to the ideals that, for example, Tomberg in Meditations on the Tarot is talking about. At the same time, these ideas are by their nature, vile ideas, the ideas that you'll find in decadence. A lot of them are ideas of, of yeah. uh, transgression pushed to a point where it's really hard to just kind of dig it, you know, like it, it goes to right. a place where it's not even the people perpetrating the act are not enjoying themselves. They are in a hell, you know? So yeah. like, so I can, I get what you're saying and that that's kind of the test, right? And that's what, you know, that's what Isaac the Syrian meant when he said that, you know, a, a merciful heart is a heart that burns with love for demons. We have to be able to go into the shadows and the places where the lights of our intellect refuse to go. Uh, we have to go there. We have to go to the Damn things right. that are... And that begins at least, it's like the step one in a polity like our own. It begins with listening to the other side of the political aisle. That's the minimum we have to do to embark on this yeah. path. The minimum. Yeah. If we don't do yeah. that, we'll continue to splinter and fracture, and we will end up in a state of civil war. So yeah. uh, having said all that, we actually, it's funny because we sound like we're just dancing around the top, but we are deep in the Wheel of Fortune right now. We are actually we are. talking Absolutely. about the, what would, yeah. Well, yeah, because what you're just talking about, okay, so the question is, is existence, and this is maybe the fundamental question that Anonymous um, I've decided I'm going to try and go hard and just calling him anonymous. I was, I was, I felt bad when I said Tomberg. Yeah, we're not anonymous using his it actual is, name. Yeah, it's his it, will. It's, uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. We'll respect his um, wishes. Yeah. Uh, we are getting to the heart of what anonymous is on about in his very difficult and kind of all over the place, somewhat messy, but I think very deep chapter on the wheel. The fundamental idea that he's working with it could be put in the form of a question is existence like practical existence, material existence, you know, our existence here, like below the abyss. I'm using Kabbalist terms, which for me, it's always by way of Crowley. When I talk about Kabbalah, there's a wonderful quote 
in Lon Milo Duquette's commentary on Alistair Crowley's commentary on the Thoth deck. He, that is to say, Duquette, writes, Above the abyss, all opposites are reconciled. There's no concept of change or luck or anything else we can comprehend. It is only below the abyss that the lumbering apparatus of forces and principles that appear to drive the universe is set in motion. The fundamental flywheel that keeps this great machine churning out everything we interpret as existence is a very efficient little perpetual motion device located in the highest sapphire below the abyss, Chesed, the sphere of Jupiter, where the three gunas revolve. The blueprint for this three-stroke engine is Atu-10, fortune. So here, you know, Crowley, or actually Duquette, uh, interpreting Crowley, is sort of saying like, okay, the Wheel of Fortune... Its domain is the domain of like everyday life, material life, getting and spending, raising a family, pursuing a career, all that shit, right? The business of life. From Duquette's hedging, where he talks about the lumbering apparatus of forces and principles that appear to drive the universe into motion, he is, of course, pointing out that What's below the abyss is not all of reality, as we moderns tend to think. There's also above the abyss. But the domain of the wheel, below the abyss. And the question that Anonymous is trying to get at is, is that all there is? It's the Peggy Lee question. Yeah. Is that all there is? Is our life a fixed, zero-sum revolution through the same elements, the same situations, the same personalities, the same things? Are we living in a zero-sum world where nothing new can ever really get in, where it's just the endless reshuffling of known elements? Or is there some principle by which something capital N new can get in? Exactly. And one way of tying, you know, when you say like, it sounds like we're not talking about the topic of the show, but we actually are. The way I would tie in what you were just saying, or what we were just saying about this kind of yoga that you have to perform when dealing with difficult or unaccustomed ideas is, you know, the question that occurs to us in the intellectual sphere down here below the abyss is, are we just doomed to be cycling through the same handful of opinions and stale ideological positions. Mm -hmm. Is it just left versus right? Uh, yeah. You know, shirts versus skins. Is it just one of the available tribes of opinion that exist in this world? Or is it possible for us to take what is given the existing set of ideas and through our evolutions and revolution through them, is it possible to come somewhere new? Right. And the people who are sort of saying, like, you need to avoid the bad ideas and stick only with the good are doomed to remain forever stuck in a closed system, a closed wheel, doomed forever to remain on the loop where you're constantly fighting the bad ideas with your good ideas and you're never 100% win. the bad side of your ideas. You right. can't. You, you, by definite, like. The rules forbid it. So your you good will ideas never win. are good. You um, will never win and you will never lose. You will just, th yeah. the fucking wheel will go round and exactly. round and round for you forever, which as Anonymous points out, is a certain way of envisioning hell, yes. a personal a hell, hell, a self-created cosmic hell that we live in. And the question is, can we escape that? 
By what means can we escape it? In recent cultural memory, there was a show that everybody was watching a few years ago called True Detective. Did you watch the first uh, season of True Detective? Nope. Okay. It was a good show. It was a good The first season. I haven't no, watched so the here, yeah. subsequent seasons. And uh, actually, um, there was a, a strong vein of Legatian thought going through the first season, at least which even led to accusations of plagiarism. But in fact, it was hard to locate any particular passage that was plagiarized. It was more like the writer had been tremendously inspired, perhaps, by reading Thomas Ligotti's Conspiracy Against the Human Race. But And basically, that show, there's a, a character called Rusty Cole, and he's a cop. He's a disillusioned, jaded, nihilistic cop who believes that he Basically, all he doesn't add anything new to the discourse. He just takes what science says. He follows the science, you know, all the way to its ultimate conclusions. We are programmed biological machines. The world is a thresher. It says the universe is a threshing machine, I think he says, or a thresher. Mm. You know, just that ultimate nihilistic paradigm that we've discussed before, he just fully embraces. He's fully on board with it. And one of the lines, one of the things he says is time is a flat circle. Ah, yes. And I've heard that uh, quoted many times. I didn't realize yeah, it came from that time show. Is a, I think it comes from that show. Now, it might come from somewhere else, but it does occur in that show. But time is a flat circle. It really gets to the heart of one half of the picture of the real that Anonymous, or I propose we call him our known friend. <laughs> <laughs> you, know how he, you know how he writes? The, the, the book is written to an unknown friend, so he's constantly addressing us you, as the as reader the, you yeah. the reader as my unknown friend in the text but since he's our unknown friend but now we know who he is he could be our known friend um so uh hmm. our friend who shall not be named um one of the things he says is that one half of the picture of reality one half of reality let's call it what is below the abyss is a process that he calls enfoldment things coalesce and try to fold in on themselves in order to become discrete, complete in themselves, autonomous. There's a tendency for things to group up, to mass up into units. Even the atom, it could be seen as a, a result of the process of enfoldment. And he says the process of enfoldment is what the serpent represents in the right. Genesis story. The serpent coils in on itself. It forms the Uroburos, the closed circle that devours itself, you know? And there's a tendency in things to work for that, to work towards that end, to becoming autonomous, becoming complete, closing in. But if it were to be successful, that process would result in an absolute hell. And whenever we see the world on those terms, the world becomes a cosmic hell. This is something that I mentioned in my class without planning to at one point that I did last in the fall there. It's that you can believe in heaven or not, but you have to believe in hell because if there is no heaven, then the world is hell. And what I meant by that is that if all that exists is the flat circle of time, then we're already for all intents and purposes in a cosmic hell where, yeah. where we're stuck in that situation you just described brilliantly saying you have to you know, pick your tribe and your tribe has to be absolutely right and you have to fight the others and there's no way out of that eternal conflict. In order for the flat circle of the cosmos, so the serpent uroboric structure of what is below the abyss to open onto the new is for something belonging to the outside to be able to come in. So the circle has to turn into a spiral. This is how uh, 
our unknown friend, our known friend puts it. Our known so, friend. I do so, like that. Yeah. The known friend. And, uh, and he's tremendously inspired by Bergson. He often brings up Bergson. And Bergson's last book yeah. was a book called The Two Sources of Morality and Religion. It's a fantastic book that I hope we get to do one day. It's really fun. And in that, he really develops a kind of theory of the moral and the religious, which is completely predicated on this distinction between the circle and the spiral, between the closed and the open. There's a tendency mm. in the universe to close things, but there's also a miraculous power in the universe to make sure that every closed system opens onto others, other systems. And so, mm. and it's that kind of play of these two principles that our known friend characterizes as the serpent and the dove. These are the two f animals of the system. It's the interplay that creates what we call cosmic evolution or cosmic development or providence or the, the right. way we're working towards, you know, when Christ says, be ye wise as serpents and innocent as doves, that's the esoteric ex explanation. It's that mm. wise as serpents is you have to be aware of how the forces below the abyss work, how the yeah. serpent functions. You have be to be the know. master yeah. of this world below the abyss. Innocent as doves means you have to be completely open to the absolute imminent possibility of the new coming in at any time. Yep. And you have to let go of your mastery. Exactly. You have to be like, a fool like Prospero to... drowning his books. Exactly. Exactly. That's an interesting thought. Yeah. You know, somebody who picks up on this idea is Alejandro Hodorowsky mm. in his commentary on the Marseille Tarot. Each of the chapters on the Major Arcana, he has a little section for each. And if the fill in the blank spoke, it, the title of the section is always, and if the fool spoke, and if the emperor spoke, etc. And this is always where Hodo gets most venturesome in characterizing the energies of these cards, because he is speaking from like a first person perspective. Yeah. He personifies these cards. So this is what he writes about if the Wheel of Fortune spoke. And keep in mind, I am now going to speak as the Wheel of Fortune. I have known all experiences. In the beginning, I had an ocean of possibilities before me. Guided in turn by will, by providence, or by chance, I have chosen my actions and accumulated knowledge, so that I could then burst forth without any preconceived purpose. I have attained stability countless times. I have tried to keep its fruits on my table only to see them rot. I have grasped that I must open up to others and share. I have realized that I must seek within for the great other, the divine source and center of my countless revolutions around the axis. I became lost seeking everything that resembled me. I have enjoyed the pleasure of seeing my reflection in the eyes of the other, as if in infinite mirrors, until that day when, with an irrepressible force, I took action in the world and tried to change it, only to realize all I could do was begin to transform it. My spiritual quest expanded to the point of imbibing the whole of matter, and I attained a terrifying perfection, that state where nothing can be added to me or taken away. I did not wish to remain petrified this way, so I then abandoned everything, with only my wisdom left for company. I reached the extreme limit of myself, full but arrested, waiting for divine whim, universal energy, the mysterious wind that blows in what is inconceivable, which would cause me to revolve so that the first burst of a new cycle would blossom in my center. Mm, love that. 
Yeah. And particularly when he says, I attained a terrifying perfection, the state where nothing can be added to me or taken away. I did not wish to remain petrified in this way. And so I abandoned everything. That is that movement of wise as serpents, innocent as doves, seeking again at the center, a kind of primordial innocence. Right. Wiping the slate clean, and but in so doing, beginning yet another cycle. It actually just dawned on me as you were reading that, that the wheel, I think, is, you'll have to help me figure out if this is the case, but I think the wheel is the only technological construct. Uh, it's not the only technological construct in the tarot illustrations, but it's the only one that that merits its own card. Hmm. That's an interesting thought. I can't thought. think of another, the wheel is a- Well, the angel of judgment has a musical instrument, has a trumpet. Yeah, I mean, I there are scales elsewhere, there are pillars, there are all kinds of technologies in the pictorial representations, but the Wheel of Fortune machine. is a machine. The Wheel is the one of the earliest machines we ever- What about the created. chariot? The chariot, God damn it. Well, the chariot's all about the wheels anyways, so. <laughs> chariot's yeah. got wheels. I knew there yeah. was something, I knew I was missing something. It's got wheels, and that's what makes it a chariot. If it wasn't, it'd be just, uh, what would it be, a box? Um, which is still a technology, <laughs> I admit. Um, <laughs> so forget that. But there is something interesting about the technological aspect of the wheel. And it's funny because the wheel, in a sense, you know, reinventing the wheel, we use the wheel as a kind of um, metonym for the whole technological process, for the whole concept of human innovation is represented by the wheel. Yeah. And so the wheel is a result of the fall because technology begins, the necessity for wheels begins after we fall from the divine, become aware of our mortality, aware that we have to toil and all that. And then we start to make cities and wheels and, and we start to farm and all that stuff. I'm just going here by the kind of Genesis myth. So the wheel liberates but the wheel also yeah. becomes very quickly the symbol of, for example, the wheel of samsara, right? The cycle, mm -hmm. the closed loop of a kind of infernal existence from which we yep. must escape or which we must, must transcend. So the wheel is a symbol of liberation, but also of imprisonment, which is kind of interesting. Yep. And I think that that's what Jodorowsky is getting at. It's the, the enfolding process that the wheel instantiates is empowering. All of a sudden the wheel becomes everything, but then it petrifies and it has to open up onto something new. Mm -hmm. And it's yep. funny because it's not like that's a binary system because the third element that frees the wheel and turns the circle into a spiral isn't part of the binary. It's precisely that third element that breaks the binary, you know? And so, so, Well, should we talk about the, uh, oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, I, no, I, I think we should probably you. get into the yeah, so traditionally, I mean, I have a copy of the Tashin 
Library of Esoteric, a book on the tarot, which I got for Christmas last year. Marvelous book, which I recommend to your attention. Do you have a copy of that, JF? I don't. Oh, it's worth getting just because it collects marvelous tarot cards, like versions of all the major arcana from, you know, countless decks. So many decks that have been made, literally thousands of tarot decks have been made over the years. And so this is like a gallery of particularly nice ones. And I can tell you, when you look at a lot of different versions of the Wheel of Fortune card, you see a lot of variation in the symbolism. Mm -hmm. There's the sort of standard, I guess it's kind of standard, is um, that you find, for example, in Oswald Wirth's deck, a kind of hermetic deck where you have the Sphinx up top. And then you have Hermanubis, a figure of um, Hermes Anubis, Egypto Hellenic mythology, a, a Hermes figure, yeah. figure of wisdom, a figure of activity, active wisdom, right? This yeah. would be on the Rajas Guna, the Mercury part, right? Merc the mercurial element. Yeah, Hermes Mercury, right, right. But in any event, so you might have Hermanubis and then Typhon, this kind of serpent that represents sloth and inactivity a dragon yeah yeah but you could also have as our known friend interprets the animals on the card the sphinx at the top that in common with a lot of decks but then we have a monkey going down on the left side of the wheel and then a dog what he interprets as a dog although it does have a rather reptilian head so it's yeah. i don't know if medieval it's people a, were really bad at drawing animals <laughs> really bad <laughs> Like really so bad. I, I'll yeah. take, I think I, I sense a dog in there. <laughs> right. Um, so let's but just say a dog in the Ghostbusters sense. She's yes. a dog. Okay. There yeah. you go. <laughs> but we have, you know, like there's different allegorical figures. Usually there's a Sphinx at the top, but you know, there's different allegorical figures. One of the oldest decks, the Visconti Sforza deck actually has four figures on the wheel. The one at the top is labeled I reign. The one at the bottom is I have no reign. On one side is I will reign, and on the other side is I have reigned. Oh, wow. And so, kind of cool. you know, that's a quaternity rather than a triplicity. If I'm putting on my skeptical historicist hat, the idea that these figures and these figures alone bear the symbolic weight of this card is not really borne out by history because there's so many different versions of what these things are. But the lowest common denominator we can say, there's creatures on a wheel and these wheels and these creatures in different ways allegorize different conditions of cycles what kind of cycles could be changing of the seasons it could be stages of life it could be birth and death and rebirth it can be i mean anything that is cyclical right but but uh, yes it's but i think that uh, first of all our known friend's interpretation aligns very closely with Crowley's and both Crowley and, right. and Tomberg would say that a lot of the decks are just plain wrong. Yeah. That if you are aware of the language of symbolism, there's a very good reason why you want the Sphinx at the top. And, and then either a kind of Hermanubis or a monkey figure on one side and the Typhon on the, or a dog on the other or, or vice versa, actually, probably be the other way around. But the point is that the, the, actually it's funny because this chapter ends with this kind of long appeal to the reader to understand that according to Tomberg, I mean, Tomberg's not kidding. He's actually a hermeticist. Like he actually believes no. that, that yeah. hermetic truth supersedes any type of historicism. 
So he's actually saying, like, although he agrees with the historicists that the tarot wasn't actually inherited from the Egyptians, as Crowley has argued, that the tarot actually was made by the the late Egyptian priests and passed on to secretly and existed in underground channels until finally it emerges into the light of day at the end of the Middle Ages. He says that's not true. The tarot is a reincarnation of pagan wisdom in the Christian world. I guess this is just a point of distinction between his way of looking at the tarot and others. It's that he sees the Marseille tarot as the right deck. (laughs) So, of course, it's easy to say, well, that's just his opinion. But he's got like 700 pages trying to explain why it's not just an opinion. Even so, at the end of this chapter, this is the chapter at the end where he kind of just like breaks the fourth wall and starts to talk about his intention in doing this project at all. And he's like, Look, I can't help myself, he says at the end. I am a hermeticist. This is what I do. So I ask the professor. He says this. This is. I was wondering about, I was thinking of you when he writes this at the end of the chapter. He says, Monsieur Professor, forgive me this arrogant and immodest aspiration, the aspiration to personal certainty with respect to the totality of things, that you in the industrious and fertile work that you do hope to attain only after centuries of the collective endeavor of generations of scientists. But at least know that I'm infinitely grateful to you and that you have in me a disciple always eager to learn from you with respect and gratitude and who would never presume to teach you whatever it may be. In other words, it's like, yep, everything I'm saying here is going to look like bullshit from a certain point of view. Yeah. But if the tarot is a kind of picture book of the Tao, let's say, if the symbols mean something like one of the things i really dig is the sphinx figure at the top the sphinx combines the four animals that have been traditionally associated with the four evangelists right the bull the lion Mm -hmm. the eagle and the angel angel. or the man and it's true i had never actually it's funny because i've been reading occult stuff and i've probably read this before but i'd probably forgotten that the sphinx is the combination of those four animals so the yep. Sphinx, interestingly for Tomberg, for, for our known friend, sorry, I keep, I keep outing him, keep doxing that mo- poor motherfucker. Um, <laughs> the, the Sphinx really is, at the same time, the ultimate synthesis, the kind of resynthesis of all the forces of nature into the original creation that fell from grace, and also the not yet synthesized kind of cobbled together monstrosity of the fallen world itself. So if you're the dog evolving towards the Sphinx, you're moving towards this ultimate synthesis. If you're falling away from the Sphinx, then you're falling away from that original creation, which can only be perceived from our point of view as a kind of monstrosity. So it's just so rich the way that he interprets it. And I thought so perfectly aligned with what Crowley says about the Wheel of Fortune that I don't want to be too quick in, in saying it just means cyclicity. Like, it's just, there's so much there, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. No, I think, I mean, for one thing, you always get more out of a text that you read if you provisionally decide it's true. If you have a certain degree of charity enabled, even if it's charity strictly delimited to the act of reading, like for the purposes of the next 25 minutes that I have to read this text, I will on some level decide it's true. Because if you don't, then you're going to get practically nothing from it. And this is not an extraordinary operation in the intellect. That's It's more or less automatic whenever you read anything. You have to donate some, as I was saying at the beginning of this conversation, you have to donate some of your charitable consciousness right. to a text, right? And this is doubly true, triply true 
of uh, Anonymous's writing here. And I want to return to the Sphinx because the Sphinx obviously is sort of key. But just to return to the extraordinary fourth wall busting conclusion of this essay, he doesn't only address the professor, he addresses a priest as well. To the professor, he asks forgiveness for the temerity to believe that this kind of knowledge, a kind of illuminated knowledge, knowledge above the abyss. A gnosis, let's be frank. Yeah, gnosis. The temerity of of believing such a thing possible and seeking to attain it, as opposed to the action of the scholar, which is very much the action of the serpent. It is the piling up of known and knowable things. And the point is, at the end, you will have a pile large enough, a tower, to return to that tarotic imagery. And, you know, from that point of view, like there's a kind of a, uh, a temerity there. It's all, it kind of reminds me a little bit of the distinction between sudden enlightenment and gradual enlightenment schools in Zen, which I don't want to get into. But it's interesting, however, when he addresses the priest, yeah. because his project is violating the average professor's idea of what is possible and what's a, a legitimate kind of intellectual project. And the idea of attaining knowledge above the abyss doesn't even map into the work of scholars, right? Right. But for the priest, it's different. The presumed criticism of the priest here would be something like what Mackin is on about when he talks about sin as the taking of heaven by storm, a seeking the knowledge of angels that is not given to men. Right. And so f- for this, he says, Monsieur Priest, pardon me concerning what you think to be human pride, which wants to penetrate into the mysteries of God instead of bowing before divine wisdom and goodness and accepting with humility, as befits a Christian, the revealed truths of salvation, which, insofar as they are practiced, suffice absolutely for the well being, happiness, and salvation of the soul. I say this to you now as if at confession. I am unable not to aspire to the depth, (laughs) the height, and the breadth of comprehensive truth, to comprehension of the totality of things. I have made the sacrifice of the intellect, sacrificium intellectus, in all sincerity and without reserve, but what an intensification of the life of thought, what increased ardor in the aspiration to spiritual knowledge that has followed. I know that the truths of salvation revealed and transmitted by the council of the Holy Church are both necessary and sufficient for salvation, and I have no doubt whatever that they are true, and I strive to do my best to practice them, but I am unable, and that's in italics, to arrest the current of the river of thought which bears me toward mysteries that perhaps are meant only for saints, perhaps only for angels, in any case, that I know without doubt are reserved for beings more worthy than me, Father will you grant me absolution? Yeah. And then he ends by saying, come what may, I can only echo Jacob's words. I will not let you go until you have blessed me. That too, by the way, links up to what we were saying at the beginning of what I was saying about Hashek's line, the well brought up person may read anything. Perhaps we can put it differently, that there is a passion of the soul, not just a passion of the mind, but a passion of the soul to know, to attain knowledge, knowledge above and below the abyss. And elsewhere in this book, Tonberg spends a lot of time worrying about how the knowledge below the abyss, the knowledge that pertains to verbalizable and propositional utterances, 
how that might have something to do with the knowledge above the abyss. And in fact, we talked about this in one of our tarot episodes. I can't remember which one. Maybe mm -hmm. The Fool. I'm not sure. But in any event, he's like, I recognize that there are problems with this kind of like, I'm going where the will to learn takes me. I recognize that. I just can't not do it. Can't help it. And I have to say, I feel somewhat similar. Why attempts to restrict what a well-brought-up person should read only to the writings or the opinions of this or that tribe seems to me to be, well, impious, in fact, yeah. is because it offends against this urge this desire that is so deep, it's almost reminds me of like, you know, the way salmon like go against the current and dash themselves against the rock and get swallowed by enormously fat bears that have figured they don't have to do anything except sit there by the river's edge and grab <laughs> salmon out of the air with their jaws. Like that, you look at salmon doing that and you're like, man, you must really want to spawn. Yeah. You must really <laughs> yeah. want to get up. And, 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 and in a moment like that, you're like, it's not even like the salmon is like, I've made a rational decision about spawning. This is the best way for me. It's just impelled by capital W will in that Schopenhauerian sense, the, like the best fucking illustration of Schopenhauer's it's will. Per, it's perfect. You're absolutely right. And also, and, also, and my point yeah. is that that's also the shit that animates, I think, a quest for knowledge exactly. and which is going to make you run roughshod over all of the dictates of this or that institution, because ultimately your bottom line is I'm not letting this go until I get the blessing. Exactly. And the two institutions he's addressing here are academia in the widest sense and the church, which I guess are the two institutions he's most concerned with because he is a kind of scholar who's also happens to be a Catholic and also happens to be a kind of magician. So. Yes. And uh, it's funny, the salmon analogy is just so perfect because if there's any species that has earned the right to fully embrace antinatalism, it has to be salmon. I mean, the salmon, <laughs> the salmon priest who's telling the others it's not worth it, let's just go extinct, is absolutely right. You know, like the process, the spawning <laughs> ritual is just hellish. It's just absolute hell. Can you imagine being a salmon? And having to... It's fucking, it's fucking Lovecraftian yeah. when you really think about it. Like, oh, imagine if you had to do that. Exactly. But uh, that's how it's going to turn out for you. Dashing your body to pieces on the rocks for just the opportunity to have sex once. And then you die in the jaws of a bear. And you're like, oh, fuck. Better luck next time. But it's also the salmon becomes a perfect symbol of that counterforce that our known friend says... The scientific model of evolution is missing. Uh, the scientific mm. model of evolution is a flat circle. Random mutations occasioning what looks to humans who have evolved to think a certain way like progress. <laughs> you know, like, like it's all right. just everything collapses back into the flat circle for the Darwinist. Yes. What he's saying is that this misses the other, the counterforce. The counterforce is the force of... Um, well, he, he characterizes it in different ways. He describes it in different ways, but it's a spiritual drive, a telos that is also active in, in evolution uh, and that you can't really see evolution for what it is without. You have to account for this. And, and scientists will say, well, yes, we have to, for example, a Darwinist scientist will say, 
the theory of evolution is very important. It's very important that we embrace this and that we reject creationism. Well, then there's an implicit teleological thinking in that, that there's some kind of value to scientific knowledge. But for there to be value to scientific knowledge that isn't just an illusion of value, that's just itself another mimetic mutation of the stuff of life which has no ultimate purpose, well, that, that defeats the claim that there's something significant about the theory of evolution. The theory of evolution, if it is important, is because there's some kind of destiny at work in the scientific project. There's some kind of teleological purpose for doing science. And the theory on its own can't account for that, other than to say that it's just a useful illusion, but then you've already negated it. There's no importance to scientific theorizing if ultimately there's no purpose to existence. So he's trying to bring in this other side. So he's like, what scientists do, what the modern construal does is it just sees one side of the wheel, right? And it ignores- yeah, going up. Yeah, going up. But it, it ignores the other side, which is the gone down, the fall part. Right. That the process of evolution isn't just a blind process, but also something guided by providence, some kind of reintegration on the cosmic scale that's happening and also happening at the same time inside each of us, a kind of weird reconciliation of creation with itself. And he has some brilliant ways of trying to illustrate this idea in this chapter. The stuff about like what science is about versus what a kind of more initiated hermetic Christian perspective is on about, that comes early. And he's saying basically that the scientific idea of evolution is, he says, unintelligible because it only has up, it doesn't have down. It has ascent, but it doesn't have, you know, like de-evolution or, or like a falling off. The capital F fall, of course. You've alluded to this. He makes much of what the fall is and how this relates to this dynamic of evolution going up and going down. Maybe we can get to that. But just for now, I'll point out something that I got stuck on early. I didn't understand what he was talking about, but then I actually had a thought uh, related to the glass bead game and our old friend Tegularius who have decided is just like the patron saint of academics. So this might be a little bit of a departure or a little bit of a side, a side show, but I wanted to try this idea out on you. On page 235, Teilhard de Chardin, who was an, a paleontologist and also a Jesuit priest, whose writings are very important and we should probably do a show on him at some mm. point. In any event, Tehard is given as an example of a scientist attuned to spiritual truths, not just a scientist, but a scientist in a hermetic who, who scientist. Who is uh, after more complete understanding of reality. And as such, quote, uh, advances the postulate of the pre existence, be it only potentially, of a prototype for all beings, which is the ultimate as well as the effective cause of the whole process of evolution. This I did not understand how on earth in a scientific context he was going to propose an idea of some kind of primordial atom, the prototype of all humans, indeed all creation, from which actual existing humanity is a fall, a descent from an ideal type to whatever it is we are. And I was like, okay, how is this somehow more intelligible than a scientific understanding, which moves always from simpler to more complex organisms? 
How is it more intelligible to imagine starting off with the full complexity of an organism and then dropping away from that to only to find it again later? That didn't make any sense to me. In effect, how could something at once be the thing to which or towards which an entity is evolving and also the thing from which it has fallen. But then I was rereading the glass bead game or some parts of it for something I'm working on. And I came on Hesse's amazing description of Tegularius. And it seems to me that Tegularius is a perfect example of what Anonymous is on about here. That what he's talking about is not just biological evolution in the sense that you learn about it in college classes, but just how things go. Like the way of processes, of change of material reality, which after all is the domain of this card. In this logic of transformation, actually, Anonymous is really onto something. And think about Tegularis. He is at once the highest and most refined kind of Castalian, but he's also the portent of Castalia's degeneracy and downfall. He embodies an antiodromia as he attains the highest degree of perfection in the play of the glass bead game. He reverses into decadence. Tegularis is what the narrator of the novel calls a sublime acrobat of the glass bead game and a pampered and high strung pure Castalian. And Hesse's narrator says something to the effect that he's a portent of the future. He writes, like most solitary geniuses, Tegularius was a forerunner. He actually lived in a Castalia that did not yet exist, but might come into being in the future. And, and a Castalia still sequestered from the world, but inwardly degenerating from senility and from relaxation of the meditative morality of the order. A Castalia in which the highest flights of the mind were still possible, as well as totally absorbed devotion to sublime values. But this highly developed, free-roaming intellectual culture no longer had any goals beyond egoistic enjoyment of its own overbred faculties. And so, like, Tegularis is at once the absolute, like, summit of the glass bead game player, but also in his perfection, also the portent of its downfall. He is the hinge point of this reversal or enantiodromia. And it occurred to me, I can think of lots of examples of that right. in life, how things achieve that state of perfection before the the fall before going to seed. Like, you know, it's an example I've used on this show, plants in August that attain their fullest form before they start literally going to seed and degenerating, falling apart in front of our eyes. What our anonymous friend is about is very basic shapes to reality, from which point of view, understanding cyclicity as a part of evolution is absolutely essential. It can help yes. our understanding of biological evolution, but it can allow us to understand just the way of things, yes. the Tao. The cyclicity makes it impossible to conceive of any ascent clearly without also seeing it as an instantiation of descent. No going is not also a return, right? That's kind of what uh, the book of Ecclesiastes that he quotes in this, you know, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Everything is turning. And so when we're moving towards something, we're moving back to something we've lost and vice versa. When we are falling away from perfection, the process of falling away from perfection is already the process of reintegration by which that perfection is restored. And that's kind of the whole Christian cosmology is based on this idea of uh, an initial perfection that fell 
And then there's this reintegration that's happening. And then there'll be a new creation at the end. And this is, of course, very, very close to and what- And that's the Sphinx. That's what that's the Sphinx what is. That's the Sphinx is. image of that reintegration. Yeah. But the idea that we can think of reality without this idea of a fall, of a lost perfection, of an initial perfection that was lost, is the key thing. It, it's the, what's missing from the modern paradigm, is we're missing that one piece. There's a great line that I heard recently. This is from the Vatican II documents when the in Rome, when they were- questioning or, or reevaluating where the institution was going there in the 60s. The line was, uh, where God is forgotten, the creature itself becomes unintelligible. Ah, interesting. And so the idea being that without the ideal implicit in the creature, in ourselves as creatures, without the ideal implicit in the process of science, the ideal, let's say, in science would be an ideal of seeing of seeing reality as it is without that ideal, mm -hmm. without that, that ideal being in some sense at the origin of the process, at what spurs the process from the beginning, then science becomes kind of in, unintelligible. And so Latour, his work as an anthropologist in laboratories, his early work where he was basically applying the methods of anthropology to modern scientists really bears this out. What he observed was that, for example, scientists are constantly resorting to teleological thinking and must resort to it. They're constantly attributing agency to the objects they observe because without doing so, they can't do the science. And it's, I've said this before on the show, it's a myth that scientists begin in pure abstraction neutrality and then work and then finally at the end they will wrap everything up in a teleological package just so that non-scientists can understand that's not true the teleology of science that scientists must embrace is present at the hypothetical stage of the of the method it's like when they're doing hypotheses it's all teleology and at the end when they try to make sense of it all it's all teleology there's always a sense of telos of purpose of goal of intent of ideal in the process itself, it's just there's a constant performance of a negation of that. Yes, we must see it this way, but it's that's an illusion. You know, we have no choice but to use our language because our language is all we have. But please believe me when I say that there is no purpose deep down. You know, that's what science has mm -hmm. to keep doing this engaging in that pantomime to, again, to forget what you know, Vatican II would call God, but there are other ways you could call it the Tao. Well, the point is that when the Tao is forgotten, things become unintelligible. Yeah. That's the problem. It's that all of a sudden I right. have to say that I must see purpose, but that there is no purpose. And that's kind of an unintelligible thing to think. Um, well, what we say is you have to find your own purpose. Right. right? Well, that's, that's, that's the, the classic yeah. line. You just have to find your own meaning. But if you know in advance that there's no meaning really there, that everything is just going to be your projection, then it feels like playing chess against yourself yeah. or playing hide and seek against yourself. Right, right. Like, how can you find your own meaning if you know in some corner of your mind that your search is doomed from the beginning, radically doomed to be just seeing faces in clouds. That, well, that's, and that's the failure of the Nietzschean project, right? Where Nietzsche said at the end, we have to create our own values, but values are precisely what you can't create. <laughs> They're not values if you created them, right? Values mm. are, have to be at some point on some level, 
in some iteration of what we call valuation, there has to be something that's given. If it's not baked into creation itself, then it's not actually a value, right? Well, the thing is that value doesn't pertain to below the abyss. Exactly. That's the whole thing. I mean, it pertains to it. Yeah. Yes. But it doesn't originate down exactly. here. Exactly. And that's why for, and this is the tradition that begins with Plato. Plato talks about the good as being beyond being. And if you look into Plato's famous um, unwritten doctrines, it's all about what lies beyond being, the good beyond being. And in the Judeo-Christian tradition, this evolves into the, you know, the famous three transcendentals, the good, the beautiful, and the true. You can't find the good, the beautiful, and the true in themselves in the world. They are transcendentals. They are beyond the abyss. They're outside right. the abyss, but they are the telos that guide creation. And ultimately, that's the one real question that one has to ask themselves is whether what lies beyond the abyss is the good or whether it's something that's not good. Either way, there will be some force from the outside coming in. And, um, right. and so the wager that our known friend as a Christian is making is that what lies beyond the abyss is the good in itself. And this is something that he doesn't get from Jesus. He gets that from Plato originally. And Plato thought, mm. no, the world is fundamentally good. The whole process by which we evolve, live out our lives in this cosmos is somehow sustained by the force of the good. In Paul, that becomes mm. love right? But even if you reject that, but you still follow the logic that there has to be some kind of valuation occurring outside of the closed circle of what is, lies below the abyss, you're still dwelling on the transcendent as the necessary element to make sense of things. It's like without the transcendence, right. everything falls into unintelligibility. This is something that I've increasingly believed. And even an evil transcendence is better than none at all. Yeah. Like, I'm just thinking about how you're talking about True Detective. And the, and the one thing I know about that show is that it was based on Conspiracy Against the Human Race by Thomas Ligotti. Well, it wasn't actually based on it. Uh, no, it no, was inspired but, but by the, it, yeah. yeah. The screenwriters pulled a lot of Ligottian things out and put it in the mouth of the what's the name of the detective rusty the cole nihilist detective rusty cole yeah so um you know i've sometimes been struck by people who are like they don't want to be religious in any way they're anti-religious there's a certain kind of person is coming out of like the imminent counter enlightenment to use charles taylor's term for it the kind of post-nietzschean mood where all the ideas of humanism and the older traditional ideas of faith are given a, a vicious kicking, are subjected to a kind of punishing Foucauldian critique right. where everything becomes power. Anyway, it's often people who are coming from that quarter of the contemporary intellectual map who seem to really be drawn to Lovecraftian or Lagodian kind of a negative the or a, like a, a kind of um dysphoric theology like a cosmos and, instead of a cosmos yeah yeah exactly very well yeah. put yeah ca cosmos and i sometimes think like what's in it for you why would that be your chosen metaphysic and i'm thinking like because even if what's beyond the abyss is just fucking cthulhu monsters yeah 
there's at least something beyond the abyss. There's something beyond this flat circle. It's something beyond this world of one plus one equals two. It's better than nothing. It's, well, at least you have an intelligible world, right? Uh, yeah. David Bentley Hart, uh, Orthodox theologian, fantastic writer, very close to you, Phil. I always associate the two of you. Do you know Bentley Hart? What's his name? David Bentley Hart. You should look into him. No, you, not It'll at be all. like meeting a, a cousin. There's a similar... There's affinity there. I don't know. Hmm. Which has made him... Uh, I, he's very dear to me, I think, probably because I, I see you in him a little bit. But um, hmm. he's been asked by that... One of those kind of secular thinker, interviewer guys. I can't remember his name. He's really... He's a good interviewer. He's interviewed a bunch of philosophers and stuff. I, I can't remember his name. I'll put it in the show notes if I remember. But he asked David Bentley Hard, what is the best argument against the Christian God? And he said, well, obviously the problem of evil. That is the one convincing argument for atheism. But by atheism, he doesn't necessarily mean that there is no God, but that God can be evil. You could make a very strong argument for an evil God. It's like John Keel's conclusion at the end. You know, there is a God, but why should he be sane? (laughs) Right. You know? Exactly. So so that's where the real conflict is, I think, is between a kind of, I guess, uh, traditionally... Gnostic orientation, which would see, although Gnosticism fights against this too, I guess a type of very modern form of Gnosticism, which says the world was created by an evil force and there is nothing beyond the evil force. That'd be the Lovecraftian or Legatian Gnosticism. Mm -hmm. This is all by way of agreeing with you that that is at least something that gives intelligibility to the world. Even if it's not very good news, yeah. Yeah, and and you often hear the not, not pleasant to consider. The new atheists would often kind of show their hand and say this. Well, if there is a God, he's absolutely evil. Hitchens was all about that. How God is not great was the title of his book, right? right. So basically, yeah, okay, he's acknowledging that there's something going, on, but this God is just awful. Uh, Stephen Fry was telling uh, a nice British vicar once in an interview, it's like, how could you believe in a good God in this world where there are these like worms that eat the eyes of children and stuff like that? It, giving us a perfect picture of a universe that is fully theological, fully theistic, but just presided over by an awful, evil Cthulhuish God. And right. I can get behind that. Well, you know, Monty Python made fun of the idea of like providence the idea that we live in a beautiful ordered world by redoing the words to the hymn, all creatures great and small, it, all things dull and ugly, all creatures <laughs> short and squat, all things rude and nasty, the Lord God made the lot. Yes. Each little snake that poisons, each little wasp that stings, he made their brutish venom, he made their horrid wings. <laughs> and, and our known friend, does in fact engage this with one of the cleverest damn metaphors I've ever encountered. I love this. Well, actually he evolves the metaphor for a slightly different part of the text, but it totally maps onto his argument here Mm -hmm. about the world, the nature of a, a world that has fallenness in it. He's talking about how the idea of cyclicity in the Wheel of Fortune card might be understood in a kind of disinterested way that he associates, I think, with Buddhism, where you see the fall and ascent as the systole and diastole of the 
a vast beating heart of the cosmos. You see it impersonally as the vibration of a vast cosmic lyre, but you're not seeing it in terms of like the drama of the descent and the drama of the ascent. If you think about like any novel or movie, any Hollywood movie, any, any cracking yarn is going to have moments of downfall and moments of triumph and, his point is, he's like, what makes Christianity different from other religions is that it has a note of drama, that there's a sense that there's something at stake in this cosmic revolution through cycles of fall and ascent through tragedy and triumph, that a sense of tragedy and triumph attaches to world history under the aspect of Jesus Christ. But he, And this is one of the things I love about our known friend is his broad-mindedness that he does not often get into mere apologetics, that he's not just trying to make Catholicism better than Buddhism. He wants to say, no, 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 the perspective of um, you know Buddhism or just generally the East and viewing this, this cyclicity in impersonal terms, he's like, it's actually true, but it's true from a perspective. There are actually two possible perspectives. And he says, well, you know, at one point he says, well, who's right? Those for whom evolution is an organically determined process in which descent and ascent are only two successive phases in a single cosmic vibration? Or those who see in evolution a cosmic tragedy and drama whose essence and light motif correspond to the parable of the prodigal son? And then he says, he changes it up on us. And I, say, I love, love it. He refuses to remain stuck in the wheel. He doesn't want to say who's right and who's wrong. He's like, well, what is it to be right? He sort of deftly sidesteps it. And he gives us this wonderful analogy. Are the passengers on a boat who have tickets for the voyage mistaken in considering the boat and its crew together as their means of navigation, transporting them following a determined route to the place of destination? For the travelers, the sea voyage is a natural process, something which happens by itself, provided that the ticket for the passage is paid. But can the sea captain, officers, and other members of the crew consider the passage over the sea in the same way as the passengers? Evidently not. For those who are responsible for the voyage, the passage signifies work, watches, maneuvering, and orientation in order to follow the route and bear the load of responsibility for everything. For the crew, therefore, the voyage is in no way a kind of natural process, something which happens quite by itself. On the contrary, for them, it is effort, struggle, and risk. And he says it's the same way with evolution. And as I say, evolution understood as like the way things go. And then the later passage that you were pointing out, was it 245? He starts thinking again in terms of like, you can understand natural processes from different vantage points. And so he maintains a kind of plurality of perspective that allows us to get avoid getting caught in any way. Well, that's what I was going to get at is that he, on page 45, he tells us how the kind of cyclical structure of being can be seen. He says that if you look at it from the point of view of pure thought, which is that the point of view of Leibniz, for example, the totality of mm -hmm. the world shows up without any doubt a perfect arrangement of equilibrium, a harmonious functioning of its essential parts. In other words, if you look at things from the point of view of pure thought, as someone like Dawkins would, it's a beautiful machine that works perfectly. If you look at the totality from the point of view of will, as Schopenhauer and the Buddhists do, the world becomes a kind of living hell because the will is constantly yeah. being... Um, 
defeat it. The emptiness of will becomes obvious when you look at the world impersonally. He says, but then the Christian way is to look at it from the view of the heart. So neither thought nor will, but the heart. And he says, the heart says to us, the cosmos, this marvel of wisdom, beauty, and goodness suffers. It is ailing. This great organism, which cannot have been born out of sickness, whose birth must have been due to perfect health, i.e. to perfect wisdom, beauty, and goodness, the totality of which was its cradle, this great organism is ailing. And that's the dramatic thing. And that's why we need to be in the crew. We have to be working towards not just our own redemption, but the redemption of the cosmos itself. Yes. The journey that Buddha gives each of us, you know, be lamps unto yourselves and f- find the Dharma is something that we can mm-hmm. teach creation itself, almost something we can teach God, you know? And mm-hmm. um, if you look at the book of Job and Jung's interpretation, there is this strange idea that God himself needs to be redeemed. And that's certainly what seems to be happening in the incarnation, that God redeemed himself. And so Mm. instead of seeing the world as a closed system that needs to be escaped, you see the world as the stage where the drama of redemption plays out. That's the synthesis he's trying to bring when he's comparing all these religious systems. Ultimately, he would say that, well, he does say it many times that the hermetic Catholicism that he's describing completes all these things. All these disparate religious movements find their final form in this. And as a Christian myself, of course, I'm, <laughs> I'm partial to uh, agreeing with him. However, I think that you'll find analog doctrines and traditions in other religions as well that do something very, very similar, like the Bodhisattva oh, yeah. doctrines in Buddhism or the tikkum ilam, olam uh, idea in, um, in Judaism, the idea of cosmic redemption, the figure of Maitreya in Buddhism who comes at the end and reconciles samsara with nirvana, if I understood correctly. There's an eschatological, redemptive, cosmic quality to all good religion, I think. You know, I hope that in these episodes where... You know, every time we talk about one of the cards, it really ends up being, to some large extent, a commentary on the relevant chapter in Meditations on the Tarot. But not entirely. We talk about it, yeah. Crowley and Hodorowsky and so on as well. So it's not just it's not just anonymous. But I mean, and if this is a book worthy of you know twenty two episodes, it is a deep, deep, deep work that I feel has taught me a lot, and I have no nothing particularly invested in being Christian uh, or not being Christian for that matter, but it's just kind of not, you know, it seems to me the value of Anonymous's writing is, uh, well, it's like the proof of the pudding is in the eating. Is there a kind of experiential cash value, as James would put it? For me, there certainly is. Like the idea of the fall, I know a lot of people really hate the idea of the fall and original sin. They feel that that's a tyrannical idea from the past that prevents us from reaching our human potential. Fine. But you don't need to believe the the catechism. You don't need to believe the doctrines of the Catholic Church or any Christian church to have something to say for the fall. For those who meditate, who do a lot of meditation, like if you're on a retreat or something, you probably will have the experience at a certain point where everything falls away, where the nonstop chatter in your brain falls away. There's a point even where the sense of being a person kind of falls away 
that sense of like being a me as opposed to a you falls away. But those moments of extreme stillness don't last. And you always have that experience of coming back to being a person, to being in cycles of birth and death. Always come back to that. You can feel that. I, that's a thing that happens that you can know how that feels. You enact the fall hmm. over and over and over and over again on a uh, meditation retreat. You know, you're constantly flipping between <laughs> like the above the abyss and below the abyss. We're talking about shit that doesn't uh, rely upon any particular tradition because, as I sometimes like to say, reality just kind of is what it is. It's unsurprising that people in different traditions are kind of discovered the same things, come up with different words and stories, narratives, and so on. You know, what Anonymous is adding here is the idea that there is some kind of drama, some kind of narrative outcome. And I do believe that that is a perspective that is not well represented, certainly in the in the tradition that I'm a part of in Mahayana Buddhism. Well, well, in in a way, maybe it's not, but in a way, maybe it is, or maybe I'm just reading Christian drama into it. But the Bodhisattva vow seems to me a kind of beautifully tragic mm -hmm. actually turn yes. on what. From I guess a more Theravadan perspective would be seen as kind of oh, 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 this is this is a little uppity, um, a little ambitious. I don't. Well, it's the fundamental distinction between Mahayana and Theravada, which is like, do you get off the wheel or not? Back to the wheel. Back to the wheel. But and back to the wheel can only be that choice can only be made in a spirit of love, and love is drama. It says. I know I could be out right now, but I choose to stay in. That's right. And, and that's right. And that's kind of joining the crew instead of just being a passenger. Right. Exactly. So, and that yeah. is to me profoundly beautiful. It's triumph and tragedy at the same time. Yes. And it brings all the spice to the, it's the salt of the earth, right? It's like, it brings the spice to the story, but it does more than that. That's the thing. Anonymous's insistence is that this is not just a convenient or exciting projection on our part, that the dramatic engagement with the created world, a dramatic engagement to the betterment of ourselves and to the world we're in is actually, this is essential to the movement of the world as such. And yep. um, Mahayana Buddhism, for me, is a sacramental religion precisely because of this, because it sees creation, samsara, the cosmos, as the stage for a great adventure. And that, for me, is the definition of sacramentality. And that's, what, that's the point at which the great religions speak in one voice, although it's one of those demon voices with lots of, you know, it's like a lot of voices at once. <laughs> Our name is Legion, <laughs> but like, yeah, it's, that's where we all kind of can meet, I think. And the great RPG of life <laughs> for which the Wheel of Fortune card is the fall of the polyhedral dice. <laughs> <laughs> If you enjoyed this podcast, consider subscribing to Weird Studies on your favorite podcasting platform. You can also follow us on Twitter, visit the Weird Studies subreddit, and of course, support us on Patreon. 
Music for the podcast is composed and performed by Pierre-Yves Martel, and the show is made with the assistance of Meredith Michael. Thank you for listening.